Genesis chapter 28 this morning, and I want to preach to you for a few moments from uh, verses 10 through 22, Lord willing, and I look forward to worshiping today here in the Word of God. Genesis chapter number 28, beginning in verse number 10, the Word of God says, And Jacob went out from Beersheba, went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city uh, was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Let's look back at verse number 17. Jacob says this, and he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this day, for your goodness and grace upon us. Lord, we thank you for bringing us to this place, to the house of God. Now, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts through the preached word this morning. Father, that you would accomplish that which would glorify you the most. Lord, in a group this size, I know we're home folk. I look around this room, I see people with testimonies. But Lord, you and you alone, you know the heart. And it could be in a group this size that there's some here that do not know Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that today would be the day. Not tomorrow, not the day after, but today would be the day. For today is the day of salvation. Lord, that they'd come to know your Son as their Savior. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we read in Genesis chapter number 28, we find Jacob on the run. He has stolen the blessing and birthright from his older brother Esau, and he is running in fear of his life. He has been sent away by his mother and his father, and he's gone away to find a wife. And for the first time in Jacob's life, he's truly alone. You know, sometimes it takes a person getting alone before God can really deal with them. I fear that sometimes all of the distractions that we have in life... And listen, sometimes we need distractions. I understand that. But I fear sometimes that all the distractions that we have in life, sometimes they distract us from getting close to the Lord. 
You know, one of the reasons when we take them up to camp, we don't let them have cell phones. Can I let you in on a little secret? This is going to make the kids mad. But do you know some of us adults, we have cell phones? Do you know, in fact, it is not a sin according to the Word of God to enter Big Ridge State Park with a cellular device? But the reason that we do that for our young people is because oftentimes those gadgets and gizmos provide uh, very unneeded and unwanted distractions from the work that God is doing. Jacob has found himself alone. He is running. He has been sent away. And he comes to a place. He's exhausted. He lays down. He's getting uh, about to go to sleep, about to try to gain some kind of rest on his journey. And the Bible says that he takes a stone and sets it for a pillow. Now, that don't sound too comfortable to me and you, but they lived that way back then. And he lays down at night, and he looks up towards the heavens, and he falls asleep, and the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now, this was not very uncommon at that time. You know, I, I know folks talk about dreams they had, and the Lord said this or that to them. And I think more often than not, that's caused by, uh, you know, fried potatoes and things like that other than the Holy Ghost. But at this time, when the Word of God was not completed, oftentimes God would communicate to people in a dream. Now, I'm thankful you and I, we have something even better than a dream. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, some of us, we might say, well, I wish God would just open up the heavens and come down and just speak to me. Well, you know, in a lot of ways, that's exactly what God did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. You say, what does that word transfigure mean? Well, there's, it's a little tough to explain, but I'm going to just say it this way. His glory shone through. His glory shone through. When they saw Him, they saw Him uh, appearing in the way He would have appeared after He was resurrected and in the way He would appear if you and I could see Him even right now. He was transfigured. His glory shined through His humanity. And the heavens opened and the voice of God spoke and a cloud moved over the... I mean, it's sensational. I mean, listen, if we could get that to happen around here, we'd pack her out. Amen? But you know what Peter said about that? Now, Peter was a man that was there. He's not just somebody at the foot of the hill looking up and wondering. He was there. And you know what he said? He said that we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and majesty of His coming, but were eyewitnesses of the same. He says, I was there. I saw what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. But you know what he says? He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do take you do well to take heed until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart. He says, listen, that was wonderful being on the Mount, but we've got something better in the book. And it, it's good. I mean, a dream is good, but the book is better. And so we don't need to covet what happened to Jacob here, but we do need to understand the importance of this moment in Jacob's life. As you begin to look at the experiences of Old Testament characters, oftentimes we struggle in pinpointing the moment of their conversion, if we want to use that word, of their salvation, if we want to choose to use that word. And confessedly, because they lived in a time when the Holy Ghost did not indwell a person, a person was not born again, as it were, and that's the reason that Nicodemus was so confused by the language that Christ used. They put their faith in God, and God imputed not their sin to them. God counted it for righteousness. But it was no less dramatic of an experience for them. As you follow the life of Old Testament characters, sometimes it's, it's difficult to pinpoint that. But we have no struggle as we read this passage seeing exactly what is happening in Jacob's life. And we see a few reasons for it. I want to give them to you this morning. I think we see here Jacob turning his pillow into a pillar. He has laid down not expecting to find God, but when he wakes up, he says, man, God was here and I didn't even know it. Uh, Jacob has heard about God his entire life, but here he meets with God. 
And Jacob has heard about faith in the true God of Israel, but here he exercises faith in the true God of Israel. So Jacob is lying there asleep, and a dream comes to him. He opens in his dream, he opens his eyes, he looks up towards the heavens, and it says this in verse number 12, He dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed. Now that may seem a little obscure to you, and sometimes it does to me, but I believe that here in this passage we see the way of salvation that was seen by Jacob. Uh, as with many things in the Old Testament, oftentimes dreams had to be interpreted, but God interprets this dream for us in the Word of God. What did the ladder that was set up on top of the earth, what did that mean to Jacob and what does it mean to you? Well, think first with me about the separation that is pictured. Anytime you have a ladder, now I know this is just redneck, hillbilly logic right here, but anytime that you have a ladder, guess what? You're trying to get from one place to another. Amen? If you've got a ladder, that means that you're down low and trying to get up someplace high. You can imagine as Jacob laid there uh, out in the wilderness with the stone for his pillar and the uh, sky for his canopy that he looked up towards the heavens and it may have even crossed his mind how far away God seemed at that moment. You know, at the end of the day, you know what man is trying to do. Every single world religion, every single belief system, every single system of philosophy in this world is man's attempt to try some way to get to God. Just this past week, Papa visited Congress. Did you see that on the news? And man, they fall down at his knees and, and they kiss his ring and they call him Father, even though the Bible says we're to call no man Father. And, uh, you know, that, that was a really, really big deal to a lot of people. Man, they need to read there in the book of Acts where Peter says, I'm a man just like you. Cornelius went to fall at his feet. And Peter said, get up, I'm a man just like you. And uh, you know what that's all about? That's all about man's attempt and reach for God. Man is keenly aware that God is far from him. Man is keenly aware that heaven is a faraway place. And man is keenly aware that he has no means to get there. I'm reminded of a story that J. Vernon McGee used to tell. When he was a boy living in California, uh, they would uh, go down to the Santa Monica Pier. And if you were to go to the end of the Santa Monica Pier and look straight across, you would see Catalina Island. And as little boys, him and his friends would go, and they'd get a running start on this big old long pier, and they'd run, and they'd run, and they'd run, and they'd jump off the pier and try to see who could get to Catalina Island. Catalina Island is 25 miles off the Santa Monica Pier. J. Vernon McGee said a lot of folks tried. Some folks jumped farther than others, but they all fell short and they all got wet. At the end of the day, those boys had just as good a chance of trying to jump across uh, that body of water from the Santa Monica Pier to Catalina Island as mankind does of trying in his own attempt and through his own works of uh, somehow bridging the gap between them and God. Man has always tried to find a means for himself. What was the first great act of rebellion that society set forth? Do you remember in the book of Genesis they built the Tower of Babel? Now, I'm aware that the Tower of Babel was probably not a means to try to physically reach heaven. I'm aware it was probably a system of worship and of astrological uh, fantasy. But I'm aware of this. That was society gathering together saying, we're going to sneak up on God and we're going to get there our own way. 
They said, we're going to gather together, we're going to pull together all of our ideas, all of our resources, all of our brilliance, and we're going to build a tower, and we're going to find some means to do this thing without God. Why was there such an urging and craving within the human nature even back then to try to do that? Because man is aware ever since he sinned and ate of the fruit, and God barred him from the Garden of Eden and set an angel with a flaming sword, uh, barring the way of man's entrance into fellowship with God. Man has always known in the depths of his heart that God is far away, that He's down here, that God's up there, and He can try to jump, and He can try to reach, and He can try to work, and He can try to do everything that He wants to do, but He can never make it on His own. There's a separation that is pictured here. It's interesting, you know, J. Vernon McGee telling that story, it sort of reminds you of what the Word of God tells us in the book of Romans when it says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We understand what that word and that phrase come short means. It has the idea of this. I may be good and you may be better, but isn't any of us as good as God is? None of us measures up to the perfect and sinless standard of the Son of God. None of us can satisfy the holiness of God. God is far off from us. John 3.13 says this, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. I'm reminded of what Abraham told the rich man in hell when he said, Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. We see a separation pictured here, but we see a Savior that is pictured here too. Aren't you thankful the story doesn't end with that great dark chasm between man and God? If you want a good definition for the difference, a good distinction between religion and Bible Christianity, let me say it this way. Religion is man's attempt to reach up and grab hold of God, but Bible Christianity is a picture of God reaching down and grabbing hold of man. The ladder that is set up is not set up by Jacob. The ladder that is set up is set up by the Lord that is standing above it. Unless we wonder what that ladder pictures to us, God gives us a very clear explanation. In John chapter number 1, uh, verse 49, the Bible says, Nathanael answered and said unto him, speaking to the Son of God, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because thou said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This ladder was a picture of the Son of God, the only means and way to heaven. What a, what a beautiful picture it is. Uh, Christ said this about His own ministry in John chapter 12, verse 32. He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. It's always been fascinating to me that, that God chose the cross for Christ. And it wasn't man that chose the cross. It was God that chose the cross. I mean, there's a thousand ways that the Son of God could have died, but God foreordained a cross. And I believe it's a vivid picture for you and I, the position that Christ occupies as our mediator, lifted up above men. And He is. He's pure and holy. He's separate from sinners. I understand He's 100% man, but don't ever forget He's 100% God. 
I understand that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I understand it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. I understand that he is is touched with compassion and our angst and our pains. And I understand he identifies with us. But don't let that truth ever cloud this, that he's separate from sinners. He's different from you and I. He wouldn't be much of a Savior if he is just like you and I. He He's above you and I. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And he wouldn't be much of a God if it was anyway otherwise he was lifted up separate from you and I and yet he was condescended from the place if I can use this term where he belonged where he belonged let me tell you something the cross is not where he belonged the throne is where he belongs he don't belong on the cross and I and I promise I didn't come in today deciding I was going to just fuss about the Pope but but I will if I need to but that's one of the things that's always frustrated me and sickened me about the idea of a crucifix. Let me tell you something. He's not on the cross any longer. Hey, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. And guess where He's at now? He sat down on the right hand of God the Father. He's not on the cross anymore. He's not suffering anymore. He's not bleeding anymore. He paid that debt. He made that way. He condescended. He descended. That's what's so beautiful about John chapter 3. No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that descended. No, nobody's gone up on their own, but the one that has come down and has gone back up, it's because he came down first. The book of Ephesians says, what is it but that he first descended? Oh, and he did descend. He condescended down. He suffered as a, as a sinner. He suffered as an evildoer. He paid the ultimate price upon the cross for you and I. What a fitting picture that the cross is. Set up almost like a ladder between mankind and between a holy God. I believe that that ladder pictures for us the Savior. So, Jacob sees all these things. I don't know how much Jacob understood of what he saw. But I do understand that when he looked at the top of that ladder, he sees the Lord standing there. And he knows it's the Lord. Now, I don't know how he knows it's the Lord, but he knows it's the Lord. Now, you and I, we understand that no man had seen God at any time. Very likely when he saw the Lord, it was probably a theophany. If you want to fuss with me about it, that's fine. But I believe it was a theophany. I believe it was probably Christ manifest in some way to him. But he looks up and he sees God standing at the top of the ladder. And the Lord speaks to Jacob. Now, this is very important because Jacob's faith is not centered upon a dream. Jacob's faith is centered upon a word. His faith is not based upon what he has seen, but his faith is based upon what he has heard. That's important because faith does not come by seeing. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Again, we hear people talk all the time, well, if I could just see something. No, you wouldn't believe if you saw something, because faith cometh by hearing. It's not about seeing something great and mighty. There's plenty of folks that saw the miracles that Christ performed when He walked this earth, but you get to the cross, and there's no one there. They all forsook Him and turned away. And that's one of the great illusions, like an oasis upon a desert that the lost person believes. If I could just see something, if I could just experience something. No, you've got to take it by faith. You've got to place your faith. You've got to believe the promises of God. And that's exactly what Jacob does. Now, the Lord speaks to Jacob. We see a way of salvation or the way of salvation that was seen by Jacob. But we see the word of salvation that was sent to Jacob. Now, it's very easy, and I've got to confess to you that... that 
You, you ever read over the Bible instead of reading the Bible? Confess to me if you know what I mean. Now, it's very easy as you read this passage to read verse 13 this way. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But that's not what it says. God goes out of His way to leave someone out of that equation. In fact, scores of times you'll find that formula in the Old Testament always after this passage where God says that He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here God does not say that. Can I just put it to you in plain common language if that'd be okay? It's almost as though God comes to Jacob and says this, Jacob, do you know who I am? I'm the Lord. I'm God. I'm the God Jehovah. And I was the God of your grandfather Abraham. And I was the God of your father Isaac. And now here I am, Jacob. What will you do with me? Can I just remind you of this, that God has no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you're not. And what God is making perfectly clear to Jacob is this that the relationship that your grandfather and father had with me is not hereditary. Jacob, what choice will you make concerning me? One of the greatest responsibilities that we have to the young generation is to place upon them the responsibility of choosing Jesus Christ. There's no telling, and I've been out, I've knocked on doors, and if you've ever done anything like that, then you've heard this before. You knock on a door and you say, I'm so-and-so from Walridge Baptist Church, and I'm here to talk to you about your salvation. Have you ever accepted Christ as your Savior? And they'll say, oh yeah, my granddaddy was a preacher. I'm not minimizing that. There's been a lot of great granddaddies that have been preachers, and God bless you for a godly heritage, but that's not the question that was asked. Or people will say, oh, I had an uncle that was a deacon, or I had a praying mama or a praying grandmother. God bless you for that. We need more deacons that are uncles. We need more praying mamas. We need more praying grandmamas. But uh, let me tell you something. Your mama can pray for you, but that won't substitute a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your grandmama can be the prayingest grandmama that ever lived, but that won't make you square with the Lord God Almighty. What God is saying to Jacob is this, that the relationship that your grandfather and father had are not good enough. Jacob, you've got to make a choice. You've got to have a relationship with me. I mean, when I see Jacob, can I just put it this way? When I see Jacob, I, you're going you're gonna to be mad at me when I say this. When I see Jacob, and my boy, he's the worst. I don't even know where he's at. Mama's beating him somewhere. But Jacob was a church kid, right? I mean, living in pagan darkness, his family knows God. And he's grown up in that. He's grown up with an altar when no one grew up with an altar. He's grown up with prayer when no one grew up with prayer. He's grown up with sacrifices when no one's grown up with sacrifices. And he's grown up tied to his mama's apron strings, living in the tent, uh, uh, deceiving, cunning, trying to connive his way ahead in life. And God just runs smack dab into his face and says, Jacob, what are you going to do about me? What are you going to do about me? Oh, what a glorious day it was in my life. That was me. I was Jacob. I'd grown up in a family that knew what prayer was. I'd grown up in a family where we went to church. And oh, what a glorious day it was on December 1st, 1997, when God came and spoke to a 10-year-old boy and said, Toby, what are you going to do with me? What's your decision? We see a word about the need of salvation. He says, Jacob, you need salvation just like your grandfather and father did. But we see a quick word about the nature of salvation. 
He does not say, Jacob, you need a relationship with me, so get to work. He does not say, Jacob, you need a relationship with me, so you need to start living better. He doesn't say, Jacob, you need a relationship with me, so you need to turn over a new leaf. But notice with me what the Lord says to him. In verse number 13, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it into thy seed. Thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. We don't see a single requirement. We don't see a single prerequisite. You know what we see? We don't see prerequisites. We see promise. God says, Jacob, I'm God, and this is what I want to do for you. And Jacob had a choice. What was his choice? His choice was whether he was going to believe the promise of God or not. It's interesting that God didn't promise him anything more than he had promised his granddaddy or his daddy. You know why? Because the promise of God that was good enough for them is still good enough for Jacob. Let me just pause and give you a word here. Uh, The same promise that was good enough for your grandparents will be good enough for your grandkids. The same Word of God that was good enough a hundred years ago is still good enough today. I understand methods change. I understand cultures change. But the Gospel never changes. The Word of God never changes. Holiness never changes. Conviction never changes. Worship never changes. I'm saying that what was good a hundred years ago, it's still good today. It still works today. And the means and the way and the nature of salvation is simply this believing the promise of God. Some would say, preacher, where is repentance found in here? Well, see, Jacob's been dependent on himself. (laughs) And now if he believes the promise of God, he's going to have to depend upon God. We see a 180-degree turn in Jacob's life. Now you say, wait a minute now, preacher. Jacob did some things wrong. Oh, you better believe it. And guess what? You and I have too. But God didn't say, Jacob, if you'll be perfect, I'll be your God. Jacob, if you'll do everything right, I'll be your God. Jacob, if you'll never fail me, I'll be your God. In fact, Jacob's life seems to be one of almost consistent failure. But guess what? You come down to the end of it, and God still is God. When he's an old man leaning upon his staff, the book of Hebrews says he worships. That relationship never went away. Why? Because he simply believed the promise of God. I would say this, that in a sense, the same promises that God made to Jacob are the same promises He makes to you and me. Now, you say, wait a minute, preacher, those are promises concerning the nation of Israel. Oh, I'm aware of the promises about the nation of Israel, but I'm aware that God has made you and I, we've been grafted in. We're part of that wild vine that Paul talked about, and God's made some promises to you and me. Now, think about it for a minute. God promises him a prosperity. And you say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying God is going to make me prosperous? Well, it depends on what you value about prosperity. He says to him, the land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it into thy seed. Now, this is an earthly promise for an earthly people. But guess what? You and I, we're not an earthly people, so we don't get earthly promises. But we do have a heavenly promise about a better place that we're going, a land that is promised to you and I. I did a funeral last week, and I believe that young man was saved. I believe he knew the Lord. But as you stand out and look with sorrow over a group of people, and I'm sure there's lots of folks in that group that did not know the Lord. That's customary in most funerals. And you look over at people that have no hope and 
tell them to rejoice not as those that have no hope. No, what a tinge of sadness and sorrow shrouds funerals like that. But then whenever I called Miss Vicky on the phone, we was headed back from South Carolina, and I said, Miss Vicky, how are you? I just heard she said, I'm good. The Lord's good. We just made preparations for all this, and He's happy now, and I know where He's at. I'm saying there's a hope because there's a land that we're going to. There's a place that we're going to. It depends on how you value prosperity. If you think prosperity is a strip of desert land over in the Cressel, uh, Fer- Cressel Ferton, you hear that? Fertile Crescent, then by all means. But let me tell you something. There's a better place that you and I are going. There's a better promise that you and God, you and I have been given from God. God has promised us a home one day. He says to Jacob, I've got a home for you, Jacob. Promises him his prosperity, but then I want you to notice that God promises him his presence. He says in verse 15, he says, Behold, I'm with thee. I'm with thee. You know, (laughs) you look at the book of Hebrews, and you know the book of Hebrews is a book of better things. You go through and everything's just better. I mean, it's talking about, man, that old covenant was good, but this new covenant's better. Them old sacrifices, they were good, but man, Jesus' sacrifice is better. Let me tell you something. That's a good promise that God gave to Jacob there. He said, I'll be with you. But you and I, we have a better promise. Because God was most certainly with him, watched over him, took care of him. But you and I, we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be our comforter and our consolation in times of sorrow and suffering. Promises him his presence, but he promises him his protection. He says, I'll keep thee in all places whither thou goest, for I will not leave thee, God said. And you and I, we have a promise of God's protection. So we see a word about the nature of salvation. But then I want you to notice with me, we see the way of salvation that was seen by Jacob. And the word of salvation that was sent to Jacob. But finally we see the work of salvation that was shown in Jacob. Now again, it's easy to look at this passage and to judge Jacob in light of all of his future mistakes and failings. Let me tell you something. I'm glad that folks don't gather up all of my failings and put them in one big pile and point at them and say, that's Toby Weber. But oftentimes we do that with Bible characters. We take everything that Jacob ever did wrong and put it in a big pile and say, that's Jacob. Then we take Isaac, who we know almost nothing about concerning his narrative history in the Bible. Very little is said about Isaac, and we pile it all up and say, look how good Isaac was, look how bad Jacob was. But as we look at the life of Jacob, and as we look at this moment, we see that there is a change that takes place in Jacob. And I want you to notice what happens. Notice first off the changing of his life. The place where he had spent the night was called Luz. literally means separation. But he changes the name. Now, that may not mean much to you and I, but at this time in history, that meant something. And when he changed it, he changed it to Bethel, which literally means the house of God. Why did he change the name of that place as is customary? And by the way, he would change the name of another place later on. It would come to be known as Penal because he wrestled with God there. Typically, when they changed the name of a place, it was a symbolic action of a change that had taken place in them. And what was the change that happened? Notice what he says uh, back in, uh, let's see, uh, verse number 17. It says, And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. In verse 16 he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. You know what change took place in Jacob? Listen now. Christ said this in John chapter number 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. 
You know the change that happened? When Jacob woke up from that dream, he woke up a different person. When he went asleep, God was in that place, but he couldn't recognize it. But when he wakes up and he's placed his faith in God, he says, man, God is here. And I didn't even know it. And then he calls this place the house of God. And he sets a pillar. You know why he set a pillar up? Because he plans on coming back. He says, now, listen, this is the center of my life. Now, this is where it all begins, and I plan on this being where it all ends. Let me tell you something. If you don't plan on staying in church, you won't stay in church. I didn't get in this thing to get out. Somebody say amen to that. I didn't, I, listen, I didn't start this thing to quit it. When God saved me, that became the pillar. That became the point. The house of God became the beginning and the ending of this thing. And my life was changed forever. The change to the name of the place that he is in is indicative of the change that took place in his life. But then notice not only the change of his life, but the commitment to the Lord that he makes. Now, I'm, I'm going to answer, so I'm going so to clear up, I mean, like 200 years of theological disputation. Are you ready? You didn't even know that was going to happen. History is about to be made here. I'm going to answer some questions about lordship salvation. Can I do that? Some folks call it easy believism to believe that God will save sinners even when they don't understand everything. Let me say, I'm glad I... Listen, I'm glad God saves sinners that don't have it all figured out because as a 10-year-old boy, I sure didn't have it all figured out. But then some folks call it lordship salvation to expect the Lord to become the Lord of your life. But I don't think that's accurate because He's Lord whether we make Him Lord or not. What does Jacob say? It sounds as though he's asking God to do something. But what we actually see here is sort of a covenant relationship, a conditional promise. Jacob, verse 20, Jacob vowed a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Now, it's easy to read that and think this is what Jacob's saying. God, if you'll do this, and if you'll do this, and if you'll do this, and if you'll do this, then I'll serve you. That's not what Jacob's saying. What Jacob is saying is this, man, if God would feed me, if God would clothe me, if God would stay with me, if God would protect me, if God would love me, man, He'd be my God. He'd be my God. You see, as we read the Old Testament, oftentimes we see that all capital-lettered Lord as being synonymous with the word uh, God. But uh, the Hebrew word Elohim, uh, which is what we find for the word God, it was a generic term. It just meant God in a generic sense. But that term Lord, that had to deal with Jehovah, the national God of Israel. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, Lord, you're telling me that if I'll just trust in you, if I'll just follow you, if I'll just live for you, that you'd provide for me and watch over for me and give protection to me and give peace to my life. What a God you'd be to me. What he's essentially doing is this. He's committing all of his needs, all of his desires into the Lord's hand. You know what he's doing? He's making God the Lord of his life. Nowhere did Jacob say, Lord, I'll never fail you. 
That's not what it's about, making Lord the Lord of your life. That's not what it's about, making God the Lord of your... It's not about promising God you'll never fail Him. It's not about making your mind up that you're never going to make a mistake. It's not about saying, Lord, I'll never fall out and fail and make a mistake. What it's about is saying this, Lord, I'm going to look to You to be my everything. I'm going to look to You to provide for me. I'm going to look to You to watch over me. I'm going to look to You. When I'm lonely, I'm going to look for You. When I'm hungry, I'm going to look for You. When I'm weary, I'm going to look for You. When I'm fearful, I'm going to look for You. When I'm wondering, I'm going to look for You. Lord, You'll be my God. I'll trust You with my life. Then there's another surefire way. He says, Lord, anything that You give to me, I'll give a tenth back. (laughs) That's going to sound funny. But if ever we need proof, it's in the pocketbook. You know what he's saying? He's recognized this truth. Before I came to this place, I was nothing. I was nobody. I was a renegade and I was a runaway. I was headed for a depressing and dismal future. But God met me here in this place with a pillow, with a stone as my pillow, with a future that was as black as the darkness that I was dwelling in. God met me in this place. And He showed me a ladder set up to heaven. He made me a promise that if I'd just trust in Him, if I'd just commit my life to Him, if I'd just ask Him to be my God, He'd be my God. And so everything that I've got from here to four, it's His. That future belonged to Him, and He gave me a new future. So anything that I get in that future, it belongs to Him. Jacob makes a lot of mistakes for the rest of his life. You and I do too. But the dynamic of this relationship never changes. Always Jacob is looking to go back to Bethel. No matter what happens in his life, always he's looking to go back to Bethel. Always that is the center of his life. I wonder if you've had a time in your life, not when you've dreamed a dream, not when you've had some kind of sensation or quote-unquote experience, But sometime when you, like Jacob, recognized that your future was hopeless, that your righteousness was bankrupt, that your helpfulness or your helplessness was abundant, that you couldn't do for yourself, you might as well jump up and grab hold of the stars as try to work your way to heaven. And in that moment, you called upon the Lord to be your Savior, to be your God. If there's never been a time like that, make today that time. Don't wait as you sit here in church with a stone as your pillow, with no future, with no hope. Don't wait another day. But let today be the day that you call upon the Lord. And if you're here tonight and if you've got a loved one like that, I've got loved ones like that, that you watch them go out the door and walk into the abyss of nothingness, into a hopeless and and helpless world, and you grieve for them and you long for them and you want them to know God, Make today the day that you commit to a, to a life of prayer for that person and ask God to intervene in their life. Ask God to show up on the backside of the desert in the most unlikely of places God's able and ask God to do that in their life.